Hebrews 11, I'll be reading verses 32 through uh, the end of the chapter. Hebrews 11, starting with verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's pray asking the Lord to teach us this morning from his word. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, which is precious and true, which is inspired and infallible and inerrant and is a light unto our path. We pray that you would teach us from your word this morning. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open and receptive to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Is the volume right on this? Can you hear me okay? Okay. This past summer I was at a meeting of the National Conference of Academic Deans and we had a special speaker the president of the Higher Learning Commission of the North Central uh, Association of Colleges, which is the largest regional accreditor in the nation, and it covers colleges and universities in the upper Midwest, University of Minnesota and private schools, and biggest in the country. And this person uh, had a good talk about administrative things. And then somebody asked a question and said, in light of the recent Supreme Court decision, about same-sex marriage, what do you envision in the future for Christian institutions? And the person said, now realize this is an administrative academic person, I know nothing about her political or religious views, and she's in the business of understating things and soft-selling things and, you know, being a bureaucrat and an administrator, and her response was, it's scary. And then she went on to say that she always believed that institutions should function in terms of their missions and values, but she knew there weren't some in Washington that didn't believe that. And that stuck with me. It's scary. And we don't know what the future holds for Bible-believing Christians. We don't know what the future holds for conservative and evangelical Christian institutions. But if there are tough days ahead for the Church of Christ, it certainly isn't the first time. Look at the conclusion of Hebrews 10. 
Hebrews 10, verse 32, sets the stage for the great chapter of faith in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 10, 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accept the, the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now in Hebrews 11, we have a stunning chapter about the faith of the saints of old. And we are introduced to the consistent faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and others of the patriarchs. Much of Hebrews 11 deals with the very earliest chapters of the Bible, covering the patriarchs and their wives and their experiences, the faith of Moses. In verse 30, there's a reference to the, uh, the conquest during the days of Joshua, verses 30 and 31. And then in verse 32, we read that there's not time to cover everything in the Bible. And so starting in verse 32, we have an omnibus treatment of other things in Scripture. There's not enough time to talk about everybody. So in a lump statement, there's an overview of the faith of God's people in times gone by. There's a reference to saints of triumph, verses 32 through 35. Saints of suffering, verses 35 through 38. And then in the last couple of verses, what I describe as saints of patience. But look at verses 32 through the first part of verse 35. Triumphant saints. These are men of faith or people of faith who have done tremendous things for the Lord and through the Lord by faith. The Bible is filled of stories and accounts of those who have exercised tremendous faith in the Lord. Some of these people are surprising people. If you look at the names of Samson and Jephthah, for instance, you might say to yourself, there are things I wish that they had done differently. There are things they could have done better. Nonetheless, flawed and feeble as they were in certain ways, these are tremendous people of faith through whom God was able to accomplish things. These examples touch on different periods of time. And so there's references to the judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah named here. To the kings, David is named here. To the prophets, Samuel is named here. In other words, we have a comprehensive overview of the triumphant people of faith through Scripture. We're told, furthermore, that they had different kinds of triumph. They conquered kingdoms. And people like Joshua and David come to mind as great military leaders through whom the Lord granted victory. And if I were to put myself down in one of these categories, I'd like to be here, you know, someone who was able to triumph and do wonderful things. They also worked 
righteousness or administered justice in verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, or in some versions, administered justice. And either translation works fine from the Hebrew text, but after this summer, that language of administered justice jumped out at me. The Bible is filled with examples of how to do justice, how to select godly judges, Deuteronomy 1, how to charge godly judges, Deuteronomy 16, how to train godly judges, Deuteronomy 17, men who would by faith execute or administer justice. In fact, we're even told in Deuteronomy 17 that there's a special way for kings to take their office so that by faith they might exercise their office in a godly way. So the conclusion of Deuteronomy 17 says that when a king took office at his inauguration, as it were, or at his coronation, he had to write out the word of God. The law of God would be placed before him and the priests would watch to make sure he did it right and he would write out the word of God, an abiding eternal standard of morality and justice. And the scripture says that the king was to write it out, that he was to have it with him all the days of his life, that he was to read the word of God every day of his life, and he was to do the word of God. In other words, the scripture says that the godly ruler is a man under law who is guided by the precepts and principles of the word of God. Oh, that it were so today. And then in the scripture, we find all kinds of examples of people not doing that. And you might remember the famous or infamous chapter of scripture in 1 Samuel 8, where the children of Israel appealed to Samuel that he would give them a king. And if you remember how that episode goes, they said, we want a king, not the way that God had fashioned a monarchy, but we want a king like the nations surrounding us. We want that king to lead us into battle like the kings of the surrounding nations. We want a king who will judge us like the surrounding pagan nations. And so their request for a king to judge them is not modeled on God's word, but rather is modeled upon the pagan, humanistic, statist examples of the surrounding nations of Canaan. And the Lord said to Samuel, give them their king. They haven't rejected you, but they have rejected me from being their king over them. And if on a more positive note, you want to see someone who administers justice in a godly and faithful way, look at the example of Jehoshaphat. If you go to 2 Chronicles 17, you will see what Jehoshaphat did. 2 Chronicles 17, verse 9. 2 Chronicles 17, verse 9. As charged by Jehoshaphat, so they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them 
and they went throughout the cities of Judah and taught the people. And so the men of God, tasked by the king, took the word of God and went city to city and taught the people the word of God. And in one sense, it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court does as long as you all are faithful in teaching the precepts of the word of God and grounding a people in God's law and his morality and point them to the Savior to come and remind them of what the Lord has given, you're at least doing the first half of what Jehoshaphat did in obedience to God. Second Chronicles 19, verses 5 and following. This is the second part of this judicial reform. Second Chronicles 19, verse 5, Then he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for Jehovah, who is with you in the judgment. Now therefore let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, no taking of bribes. Now look at Second Chronicles 19, and then go back to Hebrews 11, verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, or administered justice. By faith they did it. And I realize that I'm just fussing about things here because of things we've seen in our broader national environment. But there is a reminder that where there is no respect for the word of God and the standards of his commandments, then everything begins to fail. They conquered kingdoms, they worked righteousness, they received the promises of God. Joshua 23 verse 14 said that God was faithful to deliver on all of his promises. They received deliverance, or technically deliverances, different kinds of deliverance they received from the hands of God. They were spared from lions. And Daniel comes to mind who was spared death in the lion's den, but David was spared from the lions in the field. The apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4 verse 17, said that he was spared from lions as well. They were delivered from fire. And what comes to mind is the experience of Daniel's friends in Babylon spared from the burning fiery furnace. They were spared from the sword, and we can think of multiple examples of those who were delivered from the hands of those trying to murder them. David, Elijah, Elisha. They found strength in weakness. And I think the reference here is to Samson. Samson's mentioned in verse 32. What better example than Samson, this fallen judge who was strengthened at the end of his life to bring judgment on the Philistines, but we could think of innumerable examples in Scripture of those who were weak and were made strong to accomplish the things of the Lord. They were valiant in battle, Gideon and Barak and others. They experienced great miracles, Elijah and Elisha and the other prophets. In all of these things, the power of God is clearly demonstrated. God provided deliverance and triumph and victory, doing this through men of faith, 
sometimes weak, sometimes frail, imperfect instruments, God was able to accomplish his purposes. These were saints of triumph. The next kind of saint, verses 35 through 38, has a very different kind of experience. We are told that these saints, verse 35, were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. In other words, there may have been opportunities for them to submit and be released or to be spared, but they wouldn't do it because they had their eyes on the Lord and the things that the Lord had promised. They were tortured. We're told in verse 36, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. I suspect that the persecution we face is much more like this, where people say, you're a Christian, and you believe this? Aren't you intolerant if you believe that? If you believe in absolute standards, what makes you think that your standards are right, and how dare you believe this in light of what our prevailing culture teaches? If we are mocked and jeered for the faith, we would certainly not be the first to face opposition for the faith. In fact, in verses 25 and 26, we are given the example of Moses. Hebrews 11, let me start with verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We know that Moses had a position of prestige and power and wealth and learning in Egypt. We're told all of this in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. And even though he had all of these advantages, which would place him in elite company in Egypt, despite all of this, by faith, Moses, verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Hebrews 11.26 is a powerful verse. It points to Moses' Christ-centered faith. He esteemed the reproach of Christ. Now, if you look through the books of Moses, you'll find references to the sacrifices references to God's redemption, references to the atonement, all pointing ahead to Christ. We're told that during the wilderness sojourn that there were multiple references to Christ who was to come. The author of Hebrews tells us that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasuries of Egypt. And here's the reason why. For he looked to the reward. The people of God are willing to suffer reproach, criticism, mocking, and abuse because they know that there is something better to come. Others were told in Hebrews 11 verses 36 suffered beatings, being imprisoned, facing temptations. Some of you have read through the old Book of Martyrs, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you've seen examples of Christians who have suffered over the years. 
uh, when our children were growing up, we, we read a, a collection of stories about the old believers in Scotland during the killing times who faced persecution. Um, uh, Fair Sunshine is the name of the book that we read. But there's a reminder of how people were faithful to the Lord even during times of persecution, death, and martyrdom. Some were martyred. We're told they were executed. The scripture tells us, verse 37, that they were stoned, they were sawn in two. This is probably a reference to Isaiah, the prophet, who by tradition was sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. There is a pattern in history that sometimes the people of God are faithful, called to be faithful, even to death. There's a contrast between those in verse 34 who escaped the edge of the sword and those in verse uh, uh, 37 who were slain with the sword. And so sometimes God's people are called to be faithful to death. They were exiled. We're told that they wandered in caves and deserts and mountains. They were destitute, dressed in skins. They had a life of privation totally cut off from every pleasure and security of this world. Some of you who've lived in Lynchburg may know the Boyer family. It's a homeschooling family that we're acquainted with who um, did homeschooling in the very early years where there was threat that mom and dad might go to the pokey and what happened if the truancy officer hauled them off to jail for teaching their kids at home. And so the oldest boy became something of a political activist because of this experience, because he remembered his parents' instruction. If they take us away, make sure that everyone hides under the beds until your aunt and uncle can come and take you away to safety. So having this routine as a child, hide under the beds until the, the, uh, the Gestapo goes away, it sort of framed his attitude of life, emphasizing the importance of Christian freedom. Well, some have experienced great privation. Look, though, at God's assessment of these people. We're told in verse 35 that they were looking to a better resurrection. They were looking ahead. They were looking to the future. They were looking to eternity, a better resurrection. In verse 16, we're told this of the old patriarchs, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You know, this language here really grabs my attention. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Boy, you think about your life, and all the things that you've done that the Lord would be ashamed of. And even as a child of God who knows better, we're not very zealous and we're not very faithful and we still mess up. If you were to look back over your life, you could think of all kinds of things that the Lord would be ashamed of you for. But here commenting on his faithful people, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. They're looking for a heavenly reward. Certainly Moses was. Verse 26, 
He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. God's assessment, he's not ashamed of them. And then in verse 38, there's this parenthetical clause at the start of verse 38, of whom the world is not worthy. And so as the Lord looks at his saints, his faithful ones, these ones who have suffered at the hands of the ungodly, he compares them to the whole cosmos, and he says, the world is not worthy of these, my faithful saints. There is a pattern here, I think, in Scripture. Turn with me to Matthew 5. And this is a section at the very tail end of the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are really famous and justly so, but sometimes we miss the focus of Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you. Now there's a grammatical shift that goes on here. If you remember the Beatitudes, they're third person. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. See, all third person. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. Blessed are these other ones. And good teaching here. But notice the shift. Blessed are you. And if I'm one of the disciples and I hear Jesus make that shift, I pay extra attention. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Now, I'm not chomping at the bit for persecution. I don't want to suffer. I don't want affliction. I don't want persecution. And if I were to ask for a candid show of hands, I'm guessing that none of us are really anxious for that. But the language of Christ is arresting. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, this has to be for the cause of Christ. If they revile you and speak evil of you because you're just a, a goofball, you know, or, or you cheated somebody, or you're just being hateful, that's different. But when you face persecution for the cause of Christ, blessed are you rejoice and be exceedingly glad. This isn't me either, right? If I do have to go through some reproaches or difficulties, I, I might bear up. Maybe I would, maybe I would. But I wouldn't be joyful about it, probably. But this is the command of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. See, like the people of Hebrews 11, they were looking ahead. They were looking to eternity. They knew what God had promised them. And then notice the conclusion of this verse, or these verses. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are the suffering saints. These are people through history who had to bear burdens as believers. And they suffered, but they looked ahead. They were willing to endure because they looked to the reward. They endured because they knew that God would be faithful. Well, there are saints of triumph, verses 32 through 35. Saints of suffering, verses 35 through 38. And then saints of waiting, or patient saints, verses 39 and uh, 40. All of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, 
did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Now let me say a few things about these two verses. First of all, there was a unity of saints in the Old and the New Testament, right? I grew up and I was taught in the Old Testament they just worked hard, they behaved themselves, they lived good lives, and then they had favor with God because of obedience in the New Testament, then you have grace and faith. And that certainly isn't the testimony of Scripture, right? Hebrews 11 has as its burden that these were people of faith. By faith, they did this. And so in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have people who exercise faith in God because of the grace of God through Christ's work looking ahead to an eternal reward. These Old Testament saints had a good testimony. Verse 39, they had obtained a good testimony through faith. And we're told this in the very first verses of chapter 11, that there was a good testimony of Abel, there was a good testimony of Enoch. These were people of faith commended by their faith. These Old Testament saints looked ahead. They didn't receive the promise. Verse 39, they had an earnest of the promise. Promises were given through the prophecies. Some of those things they saw and received, but sometimes they looked ahead like Moses did in verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. They looked ahead in verse 13 of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, verse 13 is really interesting, right? They had received the promises. They didn't make good on them or embrace them. They didn't receive the things promised, but they saw them, even though afar off, they saw them, they were assured of them, they embraced them, and they confessed them. They said they were strangers and pilgrims because they were looking to something ahead in the future. This is a tremendous thing when people, though they can't see things clearly and absolutely and concretely by physical eyes, are still persuaded by the word of God, are assured of those things, embrace those things, and hold them dear by faith. Even as Jesus confronted Thomas and said, you believe because you see, how much more blessed are those who believe having not seen. There's an emphasis then on these Old Testament saints believing and looking ahead. We have a unique advantage in that looking back 20 centuries, we can see the completed redemptive work of Christ. And even though not seeing the resurrected Christ with our eyes, we understand by faith based upon the testimony of the Lord through his word that Christ has accomplished all these things. We have a privileged position having seen more clearly than what the saints of old had as they looked at prophecies pointed to the future. First Peter 1, 12. First Peter 1, a passage that you may be familiar with. Sometimes you say, if only I were like the prophets of old and I had access to all this information, wouldn't that be great? 
and in some ways certainly so. But the flip side of it is that the prophets of old wished that they knew what you know based upon the completed revelation of God. 1 Peter 1 verse 10, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. These are two great categories of the work of Christ, his suffering and humiliation, and then his glory and exaltation. And so the prophets are testifying this. I, I like to say it's Isaiah. We're not told who it was, but I can see Isaiah writing down Isaiah 53 and saying, when's this going to happen? How does this occur? What's the implication of this passage? And so uh, from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 65, I can see him saying, wow, what manner of event is this? To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So when you hold the gospel in your hands, realize this is something that the prophets wanted to see with greater fullness and clarity. It is something still that the angels would long to examine. You have a precious word in your hands that the people of God in times past would have loved to have seen in its full richness. Look at Luke 10. We find Jesus saying the same thing to his disciples, to the 70 as they have returned in Luke 10. <clears throat> the disciples have uh, come back. The 70 disciples have come back. Jesus is rejoicing because of this. Let me start with verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. At that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Um, had I known that you had looked through that Sovereign Grace DVD, I, I would have loved to preach about Sovereign Grace. Maybe that would be another occasion. But if you want to look at the teaching of Sovereign Grace, boy, these verses here at the conclusion of Luke 10 are a great place to look. Luke 10, verse 22. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. In other words, your position 
as those who hold the fullness of the word of God in your hand and see the fullness of God's revelation and the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of what Christ came to earth to accomplish have a unique possession, a special heritage, something that people in centuries gone by longed to see and hear. And I would say this, that New Testament saints must also be patient and faithful. Some of the people in the Old Testament looked ahead, knew great things were coming, but didn't see the fullness of it, and they had to wait. We see in Scripture tremendous testimonies of what's going to happen because of Christ. In fact, the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews had read about this. In Hebrews 10, we find a great confessional statement of what Christ had done and what God was to do through him. Hebrews 10, verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Now know that Jesus Christ had offered the perfect sacrifice of himself for our sins. He was buried, raised again on the third day, ascended to heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God. And that is a thrilling truth, that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of his Father. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. We know scripture has promised that every foe will be defeated. The last foe will be death. In Psalm 110, we read about the triumphs of the Messiah who will defeat all of his enemies, all of his foes. And we would rather that that be sooner rather than later. But we don't know the timing of God. And we're told here that he is ascended to the right hand of God, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. And so we don't know how long that wait will be, but in the meantime, we have to be patient and confident and do what we're told in verse 23 of Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast our hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is, is faithful. He has promised certain things. He will accomplish those things. We don't know when, but we know that God's purposes will be finally and completely and perfectly accomplished, and every enemy of Christ will be vanquished and destroyed. In Hebrews 11, then, in the last two verses, we read about patient saints, saints of waiting. In the Old Testament, they waited. In our time, we wait as well. I sometimes think about Moses. I'm intrigued by this reference in Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 29 of Moses. We are told of Moses and his generation, Moses, his parents, Moses, and the children of Israel, five times that they acted by faith. And so in verse 23, 24, 27, 28, 29, we're told that he and his parents acted by faith. 
Moses was a man of faith, or even more particularly, we would say based upon the testimony of Scripture, that Moses was a man of faith, of faith, of faith, of faith, of faith. Because every time you turn around, there's another reference to the faith of Moses. We're told that by faith he suffered affliction, verse 25. We are told that by faith he esteemed the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasuries of Egypt, verse 26. We are told that by faith he forsook Egypt, verse 27. We are told that his parents weren't afraid of Pharaoh, verse 23, and that Moses wasn't afraid of Pharaoh, verse 27. Most powerful ruler on earth, Moses and his parents fearless in the face of this statist ruler. We're told that he looked to the reward. We are told that he endured as seeing God, verse 27. And I think this is an interesting verse. He endured, the last part of verse 27, as seeing him who was invisible. In other words, Moses was fearless. Moses was resolute. Moses persevered because he saw the invisible God. In fact, if you look at Exodus, you'll actually find uh, an instance a little later where he asked to see the glory of God. <laughs> the Lord said, I, you know, I can't do that because if that happens, then you'll die. But let me hide you behind the rock, and as I pass by, I will proclaim, you know, my glory. The Lord is good. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is just. And I'll pass by, and you'll see a portion of my glory. And you remember that the experience was so overwhelming that when Moses came down to the children of Israel, they couldn't bear to look at him because the reflected radiate of glory of God was so profound and so overwhelming. Well, Moses saw the one who was invisible and was confident that he could deliver on what he had promised. Now, my point in talking about Moses is to say this, that Moses, who suffered, endured the reproaches of Christ, and Moses, who was triumphant, taking the children of Israel out of Egypt and taking them to the very brink of the promised land, was also a man of incredible patience. Let me read for you a few verses from Acts 7. In Acts 7, this is Stephen's great sermon, we read this about Moses. Acts 7, verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deed. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Now that verse, verse 25, is a fascinating verse. Moses, 40 years old, in the full strength that he has, as a leader in Egypt, tried to speak up for the children of Israel, knowing or thinking that they would know he was their deliverer. And of course he was, but he was 40 years too early. 
And so then it's off into the wilderness. Can you imagine what it'd be like for Moses in the wilderness 40 years, believing that the Lord had a special purpose and plan for him, but it didn't seem to have worked out. And for 40 years waiting, and so then when he's older and seemingly not fit, and seemingly too weak for the job. When the Lord calls him, Moses has all kinds of reasons why he's not the man for the job. I don't speak so well, I can't do this. And the Lord says, go. And so he goes back. The Lord delights in using frail instruments. The Lord delights in using us when we are weak and apparently not strong enough to do things. The Lord delights in using frail instruments mortal vessels to accomplish his purposes so that the glory is laid at the feet of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we have to be patient saints, knowing that a day will come when every enemy will be defeated, knowing that our Savior has been raised to the right hand of his Father, knowing that Jesus will come again, not knowing what tomorrow or the next decade or the next century might bring. We don't know the timing of God. But knowing we have to be patient, but we can be assured that the Lord will accomplish all of his purposes. Now let me close by giving some reflections on persecution. How much time do I have? Good? Uh, five minutes. <laughs> let me, and this has been on my mind. The persecution of Christians. What's the purpose? Is it, is it something that's coming? How do we deal with it? First, let me give four reasons why persecution really is good for us. Or how the Lord's purposes can be accomplished through difficult times for his people. First, persecution encourages evangelism, or it did. Acts 8, verse 1. Acts 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, remember the Great Commission, as it's retold in Acts 1, verse 8, you're to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. A persecution arises, and the disciples are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, there may have been other motivations, preferred motivations, but here this persecution was used of the Lord to extend the gospel. Persecution brings maturity, and we know this from what James tells us, James 1. In James 1, we find advice that is counterintuitive. James, to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In times of adversity, we grow. We grow stronger. We grow patient. We learn endurance. It brings about spiritual maturity. 
Persecution encourages a firm testimony as people understand that they are facing persecution, reproaches, vilification because of the faith are increased in their resolve to follow the Lord. Hebrews 10 verse 39 tells us we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. So that even though hard times and adversity come, our resolve is strengthened. It encourages a firm testimony. And finally, persecution can anchor us in our hope, the hope of life to come. This is a theme through Hebrews 11 as people look ahead to the promises, they look ahead to the reward. We see it in verse 36 of Hebrews 10, where you may have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Or Romans 8, I'll conclude with Romans 8. We are probably all familiar with this great verse in Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, and it's a wonderful promise of Scripture. We are probably less familiar with the following verses, Romans 8, verse 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now these are verses that are more troublesome. Persecution, death, slaughter. These are things that we'd rather not think about. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As one writing to faithful saints who may well have been facing persecution and the church at Rome did face persecution, the Apostle Paul gives this reminder that the people of God are eternally secure. Despite the travails of this life, they can have confidence that nothing, nothing at all, nothing whatsoever shall ever separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and therefore our persecution and travail should anchor us in our hope in Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you, through your spirit, would impress it on our hearts that we might be a faithful people for you. In Jesus' name, amen.